Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. The trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com slash balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality. On the Marie Curie Couch is the new thought-provoking podcast opening up conversations about death and dying. I only in the darkest of moments would imagine what life would be like without her. Marie Curie expert Jason Davidson chats to a host of well-known guests about their experiences and how they feel about their own mortality. People do struggle to get their heads around the fact that it's not curable. That's On the Marie Curie Couch, available now. This autumn, as the nights draw in, beat the cold with Now TV. Curl up with the latest blockbusters, including Bohemian Rhapsody and Hotel Mumbai. Plus, with over 40 new movies added each month, from Aquaman to How to Train Your Dragon 3, Now TV's got you covered, wherever you feel like watching. Get cosy with the latest and best movies for just $11.99 a month. Search Now TV today. 18 plus month passes auto renews unless cancelled. Terms apply. Busy being black means the search for possibility and meaning in our lives is endless. In part two of my conversation with Mark Thompson, a gay black elder, HIV activist, and writer, we wax lyrical on everything from our favorite books to the role cultural appropriation can play in how we better understand and bump into our history. If you haven't yet listened to our first conversation, I Have a Virus Older Than You, it's a wonderful precursor to our chat today. Throughout this conversation, we're a bit more profligate in our swearing as the effect of our wine guzzling takes hold. I'm Josh Rivers and I'm Busy Being Black with Mark Thompson. You mentioned earlier a man who was HIV positive. Say his name again. Alan. Alan, who died of cancer recently. Yeah, a couple years ago. Tell me for you as a I'd like you to elaborate on what that kind of, what that felt like for you to meet him and not to put words in your mouth, but to perhaps see someone um, uh, older than you that you might have identified with. I saw my future and I saw my future was possible. I knew that it was possible when I saw somebody like Alan. I knew that I could, no matter what, that it was possible to live to be, to be, to be fabulous and to have a rich and rewarding, filled life, you know? And if I remember Alan, and that's what I remember, that, that, that just being in that presence, it meant, it made, it enabled me to strive and to go forward. And I think it's subconscious thing. It wasn't a conscious thing. It was just a, oh yeah, you know, Pa's doing that, so we can do that. You know, and also I think because somebody like that was so generous in spirit, and that's the important thing as well. One has to be generous in spirit with their with their energy and their time to 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 people around them, and he allowed that. Yeah, great inspiration of a man. What would you do differently? Anything? What would I do differently? Mm. Not much. No. Not much, you know, one or two choices around men, probably. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> shit. Who wouldn't? Right? <laughs> well, actually, no. It's interesting. No, it's really funny because I'm reading. I'm reading some books at the moment. So I'm trying to do a little bit of that internal work, you know, that I think is all always good to do. And I'm reading a book of relationships um, from the School of Life. Ah, Alain de Breton. Oh, right. I'm obsessed with him. I think he's so fantastic. You, you checked out the School of Life, of so course. Right. right. His book um, on love. 
I, I had just broken up with my brother, so I just broke up with me. It like brought me back from the brink of, yeah. Anyway, carry on, sorry. Well, well I mean, in a similar vein, you know, um, I, you know, I picked up one of their books or somebody read me a quote from one of their books and I was going through some stuff recently and it just resonated. Yes. And I, I know School of Life stuff and I'm, anyway, so I read the book on relationships and the question was, you know, do I have regrets? And it kind of talks about having a new view of relationship which moves away from romanticism mm. you know to practicality and different things and I just went shit I've wasted 20 odd if I if I put it all together <laughs> I've wasted maybe 25 years with really fucking hot men but just so not there sorry exes but it's kind of the truth love you to pieces but fuck I should have had some more fulfilment um, regrets no 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 not at all um, I, I I've learned from all of my experiences. I wish that I could remove some of the pain right. that has been either inflicted on me or I've has been self-inflicted because I think very often the pain is self-inflicted. Mm. You know, only because we don't know better. And when I say self-inflicted, if we talk about relationships or friendships, drugs, drugs. Well, drugs is one thing, but when I talking about relationships, Sorry, I'm projecting. No, no, no. But you're right. But you're right. If I think about relationships and I look back over friendships and stuff I think I could have exited that a lot earlier right. saved myself the pain so who was forcing me to stay well I was you know and it may be because of drugs mm. codependency because I felt lonely lacking of self-worth all of those things and figuring all of this out I mean I know that it's like part of the journey like I know the whole fucking point mm. is that we figure this shit out as mm. we go along but I keep coming back to this idea mm. <laughs> that, I mean, you know, you could never tell me what to do, mm-hmm. right? That'll never happen, mm-hmm. right? Even if you were like, if you were don't do that, I would go do it. Just feel like I need to learn on my own. If I think back about the pain and, even, you know, the pain that I'm going through now, mm. you have been a salve, right? And I think that perhaps, you know, our elders are not, are not even necessarily to tell us that do this and do that but rather just as fucking living proof that you will be fine. And I think that's so linked to visibility and representation mm. is that we will... <laughs> it's important for us to be visible and to be here because someone else needs to see us being here and being us. I think people need to know that we're there for you. I don't have to sit down and tell you what to do. you know. But, by, but my example of my life should show you what you should do but I think it's really important that you know this that, that people know that we're there and I think because it's it's I want it to be reciprocal because I know I'm getting older I know my brothers are getting older who are we going to rely on state isn't going to be there for us our families you know as we get older do we get closer to them some of us do some of us get further apart some of us never had relationships with our families because of our queerness so who's asking the questions about those Late, those men in their late 50s and 60s who are living on their own, who, who aren't HIV positive, okay, but are no longer part of that scene. We have in the, I, had this, I had this reflection last weekend because I got pissed off with an intergenerational conversation and I kind of did a, an Insta thing of um, Dory and Corey and was like, you know, oh, yeah, you saw that, right? I didn't read too much into it. Yeah, but, and, 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 <laughs> I, and I had to kind of clarify and go, I'm not talking about the kids that run the balls in London. I swear I'm not. This is a general comment on... What the was ki- the comment? The comment that it was a quote that the kids these days, 70% of them will Oh, if they did less drugs. No, 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 yeah. no, no. The kids these days who go to balls, at least 70% of them wouldn't know a ball if it hit them in the face. Oh, wait. Or was it someone else that posted the, if um, gay, if the kids did less drugs, wouldn't we all have more fun kind of thing? Oh, was that wasn't new. No, no, no. Cause, oh, right. But mine was this thing. And it was, it was about this recognition. I don't know if it's a train of thought of it. Uh, you were saying that 70% of we're talking about the, the gener- the, you got upset yeah. about the intergenerational conversation. Yeah, so I kind of got frustrated about this intergenerational conversation. And in my frustration, I went, Mark, you're constantly trying to have these intergenerational conversations, which are great. But who's talking to men of my age? When I'm off there going, let's talk to the 28-year-old about what it was like in the 1980s. Who's talking to the 40, 49-year-old, the 54-year-old, to reflect on that time? Or see, well, yo, bro, what does it feel like to be touching yeah. 55 yeah. now? And you go on grinding and like, your old pops. Or okay, so 
how do we get to a place? Because you mentioned that, and I actually, three years ago, I thought, fuck, what happens to LGBTQI elders? You know, we have, like, opening doors, etc. Mm -hmm. But, like, actually, you're an elder, and you just mentioned it, and I was like, fuck, what are we going to do so that Mark is looked after when he's older? So, obviously, these conversations, by virtue of us simply having them, spark mm -hmm. something. Mm -hmm. But you perhaps also didn't recognize a generation before you. So, what do you think it will take for us to get to a place where we keep in mind... I've just answered the question myself. Well, what answer was it? Well, because I'm thinking of Latin American... Latin communities. Uh, I'm just going to be vulnerable and honest. It's either... I don't want to say Hispanic, because I feel like that isn't... In, I don't know if it's Latin or Spanish or Hispanic, so I'm just going to say all three. Latin, Hispanic, and Spanish. Mm -hmm. um, family is so deeply embedded mm. into the culture, and the grandparents take care of the kids while the parents are at work. And I think that what we're working towards, and actually the vision of the community that I see, is that there we look after each other in a really substantive way. You see, I love that utopian idea. The difference. No, 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 no. No, I know what's coming. Right. Go ahead. Families don't want to fuck each other. Now, that's not to say that we want to that's fuck each other. Not true. No, I'm sorry. Yeah. <laughs> no, I'm sorry. You're so right. No, no, but, you know, I agree. Okay, fair enough. But I think what, what comes into play is that sexual thing. So younger men are like, well, older men just want to fuck with us. That's why you want to hang out. And do, oh, and do. but that's, that's ignorance, though. Oh, I, no, I, I, oh, I get right. it. I get it. But I think that ignorance is but sometimes also, a barrier. And do you though. know that that ignorance comes from the behavior of older men... Just as it's a, a, a result of the behavior of younger men sometimes in not knowing what they're looking for with older men. Have you had so, that daddy conversation? Because it does get flipped on his head, babes, and you know it does. I know it does. Okay. I know it absolutely oh. does. So that's what I'm saying, is that like, you know, also one of the things I'm struggling with as well is like, well, why wouldn't I want to fuck my friends? Right? So, you know, we're, we kind of learn that, like, friends are this, and friends, and, mm. and more than friends is that, or you've got fuck buddies, and you've got to put this fucking title and everything, but I'm like, well, why wouldn't I want to have sex with a, a handsome, older man whom I respect? Mm. I don't understand this kind of, like, why sex gets in the way of everything, as if it ruins everything, but I think that it ruins everything. Yeah, I guess that's the thing. And I know that it ruins things because of my disappointment when someone I was looking up to made that event that I wasn't expecting and I didn't know how to, you know what I mean? And I think that, and I don't think I'm unique in that experience. No, and so, you know, we can talk ad absurdum about the chasm. Mm. We know it's there. But I think at what point do we start to recognize that chasm in a really Im important way and say, okay, well, are we each, how are we going to bring ourselves to this table to, or, right? Yeah. How I, are we going to fix this problem? I think one of the things that I've, Because it is a problem. I think it's, I think it's an issue and a, a, cha a challenge. It's, it's a, a challenge. challenge. It's a challenge. I think the way that we kind of try to address some of the challenges is, and I've, I, and again, I've, I've had to learn it through hard lessons, mm. through my activism work, right? That not everybody's coming to the party. No. Not everybody wants to have the conversation. Not everybody wants to be smart and woke and, you know, on it, right? Um, everybody wants different things. So my idea, or the way that I tend to try to work, is to focus on those that want to work with me. Yes. Okay, so it's not about going. Well, I want uh -huh. all. I all. I want. You know, I need every queer man of color to have an intergenerational conversation. No, I know that there's going to be lots of guys who, um, lots of guys who will just I'm you know, up something, carry just carry on about their day to day yeah. lives and live and enjoy. And there are others of those who want to sit down and talk and do and do the work. Okay. So, yeah, you can I read you a quote? Yeah. And actually, this is the quote I was looking for when we had lunch um, the week. Mendel's concept of the laws of genetics was lost to the world for a generation. 
because his publication did not reach the few who were capable of grasping and extending it. And extending it. And this sort of catastrophe is undoubtedly being repeated all about us as truly significant attainments become lost in the mass of the inconsequential. And I cried after I read that quote, which was in um, Mendel's essay from 1942 mm. or something, which was about something unrelated to our lived experience. It was mm. about technology or something, right? And that stuck out for me, like this huge thing. This idea that we lose these things because we're not speaking to the right people in the fucking first place. I mean, Which is to your point. Yeah. Right? To focus your energy on the people who want to hear what you're trying to say. Exactly. It's, it's interesting, you know, when I was, I was reflecting or preparing in my head for this today Thank and, you. and thinking, you know, what we're going to talk about, what avenues are going to go down. And I remember, you know, you contacted me the other day and you were like, you know, can you do, can we do a feature? And I was like, oh, we're going to do three podcasts. And, and I looked at the podcast and I was like, there's something quite interesting about these podcasts. They're all talking about our black queer experience, how we navigate it and, you know, all these great topics and these great ideas. So I think somebody's doing something around, you know, colorism and coming out and sexual racism again, um, that conversation. And I thought, I want to know what books you read. I want to know the influence of movies on your life. I, I, I want to hear a black gay man tell me about his five favorite records and tell me why they're his favorite. Because I think I learned a lot from you then, you know? And, and, and I think that one of the things I'm really interested in going forward, and it's, it's a phrase which we use, it's a hashtag we use, but it is that notion of black boy joy. Mm-hmm. And what are the things that bring us not just happiness, but make up the other parts of our life, right? So you've come to my home, you know, you, you, know, you said it's a nice apartment and I, and I really value that. But there's so much that you could do just looking around my space or, my book, or my book that collection. Art, yeah. And that would tell you just as much about me or raises many questions about me. Yeah, it raises me. questions, it doesn't answer them. Yeah, yeah, it raises many questions about me as <laughs> the questions that you've asked me. You can look at all so my fine. questions. I'll take, I'll take the lead. I mean, I'll take the hint. (laughs) So, choose three books that define Mark. These don't necessarily have to be books that you would recommend to someone else, but rather books that, um, yeah, that define Mark, or that had a really impactful effect on Mark. Ooh. Tales of the City Trilogy, Tales of the City books by Armistead Morpin. Okay. Or five, the five, the four, the first five. Which is interesting because he admitted, yeah, post-publishing how undiverse they were. Oh, yeah. Them. I mean, but I also read them at a particular time. In, right, okay. You know, at a certain age. Um, I still love them now. And there's, and that's an interesting thing for me, you know. Why? Because a lot of people I've met have referenced Tales of the City by Armistead Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But why, for you, did those hit home? I was a young gay man in my early 20s who dreamed of San Francisco in the 70s pre-AIDS and this fun, fabulous time and when my gayness, when my blackness was confirmed, right? It was like, yeah, you know, and my mum was going through the whole kind of, you know, educating blackness and black that and I was like, oh God, do I need to read another J.A. Rogers, the famous quick coloured men of history run, run down my throat. So discovering my gay identity, which was for a white lens, which I look on now, um, was cool with me. You know, in, in my in my twenties and my teens, I was a I was a huge Madonna fan, massive. You know, what I mean I love old black and white movies. I can quote you Bette Davis coming out my ass on her Barbara, Liza, Diana, all of that. I am that old school show tune loving disco queen, right? right? From the seventies, eighties and nineties. That's who I am. So Tales of the City, those books were really important for forming that kind of connection to that gay world. And I didn't see the whiteness in it. It, it, it wasn't interesting, evident at all. No, actually, let me rephrase that. I didn't see the absence of blackness. Ah, okay. Big difference. I like right? that. I, like I didn't that. see the absence yeah. of blackness. I, like I knew that. they were white. You know, when, when the character of Dorothea comes in and she's, you know, she's part Those are of different things, but they, they do work in tandem. Yes, absolutely. Right? Absolutely. Yeah. Because we often have to come back to things we loved 
Mm-hmm. And once we wake up and go, ah, the absence of blackness yeah. is, and it becomes more poignant once we realize, right, we have to go through it and we have to enjoy these things because we enjoy them because ultimately there are these universal things that we learn, yeah. but then we go back to them because those things, is it a paradox that these things kind of teach us who we are mm-hmm. and by learning who we are, we go back and examine these things and go, oh, I'm missing from this actual narrative. Mm. Okay, so book two. Tales of the City. So that's book one. This book one is Tales of the City. Yeah. Book two. Um, I was going to say Tony Morrison, but that's an easy, that's a really easy one. I don't think it is, but go on. Well, it's easy because it's in terms of what means the most, and I'm going to go with Visitation of the Spirits by Randall Keenan. Okay. So this is a book which came out in late eighties, early nineties. I was reading a lot of African American fiction at the time. You know, Tony. Morrison, Gloria Naylor, Women of Brewster Place, you know, love fiction, not a big fan of the non-fiction stuff, right? But Randall Keenan's book was one of the first black gay books that I read, and it's, if I, I haven't read it for years, but I remember I used to read it a lot, and I'm going to dig it out now. Um, and it's a story of a young black gay man, he's never named as being gay, but he's different, and his relationship to his sexuality through spirituality and wizardry and witches, and it doesn't even stick in my mind, but I remember reading it in about 1990 and it just blew in my mind because it was the beginning of reading black lady literature. You know, in the life had already come out, I could choose that, but it's kind of a standard. But this was a work of fiction that stood on its own and it was fantastical and sexy mm. at the same time. So that one, and... Book three. Book three, The Film Fanatic's Guide. The Film Fanatic's Guide. By Daniel or Danny Perry. Um, I'm a massive film fan. I, right. and film has been everything to me in my life since I was little. It was my babysitter. Um, you know, my mum would plonk me in front of the t- I mean, You know, my mum introduced me to Whatever Happened to Baby Jane, An Imitation of Life. And having this book from about the age of 16 was my guide so I'd get this book and it would have all these obscure movies and I'd read a review and I'd hunt them out and I'd go to a late night all night screening somewhere on my own um, and check out these films because it I, I remember seeing a movie and, and, and my mom saying to me you know oh, you're always doing this you're always going to these late night movies and there was a character in the film said along the lines of you know in a, in a kind of crazy world this is my form of escape and as a young black gay boy, it was, it, these mm-hmm. fantastical kind of worlds, but also looking up and seeing the glamour and the campness of some of that stuff. So those would be my three. Do you know mine? Yeah, go on, tell me. What are they? The first is um, 100 Years of Solitude. Mm-hmm. It was my first introduction to Gabriel Garcia Marquez. Mm-hmm. And I tore through it. And devoured it so intently, intensely, that when I got to the last page, I started again. Right. And on reflection, a few months after, like, why did I love that book? Why do I love that book so much? It is because it is family and grit and honor and sticking together, plus the magic of your ancestors coming to speak to you and being around the dinner table and of losing people and them going off on journeys around the world like their third son did or mm. something and coming back. But also, I remember so vividly at the beginning of the novel, you know, they, uh, the patriarch, the, the, the dad, goes on that exp- expedition because he wants to find this place and on that journey he goes on to find that place and how each of the kids kind of grows up and, and becomes a different person and and how they come back there was they, they return to themselves always mm. right they they always return to themselves and there's always a home and all throughout 100 years of solitude the home just gets bigger and bigger and bigger and I uh, you know, my home hasn't gotten bigger and bigger and bigger, but my, my chosen family has. Right. And I find so, that novel for me is number one. Number two is Bayard Rustin's Letters, mm-hmm. which is a book just full of all the correspondence he sent because the discovery of Bayard Rustin for me was a cataclysmic event in my life. I'll rem- remember it forever. Yeah. 
because it was the moment that I realized that there was a blueprint for the life that I wanted to lead. Right. And it wasn't, you know, Bayard Rustin was a community organizer, but it wasn't until I started reading his biography. I read his letters, yeah. but then I read his, uh, then I also got his biography that someone else had written. Oh, it's his biography. And the way they described him in school, he was a ladies' man, mm -hmm. never interested in women, but a ladies' man, and was always singing and writing songs, and was a great writer and writing poetry, and always so eloquent, and his diction was perfect. That's literally the, the, the accounts that people give of him. And I went, oh my God, that's me. That's me. This guy who wants to just make people's lives better. Right. Whether that's through singing or dancing or performing, or whether as his life became. Did you sing the dogs? Yes, of oh, course, all the time. Okay. Right? And so what Bayard taught me was that, hey, you're allowed to be all these different things at the same time. You're allowed to want to sing a song. You're allowed to want to break out into a Negro spiritual on a Tuesday at 4 p.m. because the spirit takes you over. And so, but his letters, which are, is this kind of expansive book that documents like his, his, his early life right through to the end of his life mm -hmm. where, and his letters that he sent as part of setting up, you know, community organizing and the way he deals with the press and the way, you know, his personal letters when he was in jail for, um, he was a, con, 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 I hate this word so much, conscientious objector. Yeah, yeah. Um, I hate it because I can't say it very well. Um, he was told while he was in prison that his sexuality could derail the entire civil rights mm. movement. I mean, and I think, can you imagine, can you imagine what it feels like in, the, in 1940 whatever to know that your sexuality single-handedly could derail the advancement of 20 million people and, and, and to see his letters kind of like elucidate what he went through, because he wrote about it. He wrote his friends going, fine, I won't be gay. I won't be gay. And I just found that to be such a profound, this, this experience that we have of trying to figure ourselves out and what we can reveal and what we can't reveal is not new. No. We are, we have been experiencing this. Mm -hmm. And, you know, his letters just resonate with me so deeply because when I don't know the answer to something, I can literally pick up that book of letters and open it to a random page. And his incisiveness will, um, will just make everything make sense. Okay. Number three is Ta-Nehisi Coates, Between the World and Me, which I read in uh, 2016. And it's a letter to his son, as you know. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And I read it, and it was the first time I ever understood my body as a commodity. Right. As a black man in the world, as an African-American man, that I have inherited this legacy of ownership. I don't own my body. It is owned by society. And the reason that book sticks with me so much is because after I read it, I put it down and I went, I, I went on a four month sex sabbatical because before then I'd only ever had sex with white men. And after reading that book, I thought, oh my God, do I have sex with white men because I want the validation of white men to tell me that I'm beautiful? Mm -hmm. Do I need white men to validate me? And that was a profound experience. And it was ta that was the first person to, to present that to me in that way. Yeah. Wow. I'm going to go through the first two. And they're on my, they're on my list. No, the first one. The first one, Hundred Years of Solitude. Oh, that and London Tunnel Collar kind of sick. Oh my god! Sick. Oh my god! They're both sitting there. Don't, and I, I tried them. I tried them both. 
I'm not gonna come back. I'm gonna come back. I'm gonna come but back. But love and oh the my time of cholera is such a delight. I know. I know. Because I, I it's know. so funny. I know. It's so funny. And when he talks about the pint, I mean, I sorry, don't get me started because I will never shut up. But love and the time of cholera is in top five because I was so surprised at how he handled that um, unrequited love. Mm. But also the woman in that in that story, whose name I forget, is so powerful and so aware of her power, mm. right? She's so aware, and she played him like a fucking fool. Yeah, it's just beautiful. And she struggled really with the patriarchy, mm. right? She was she in love in, in the time of cholera. She could have been, and, and I guess in the novel she does become what she wants to be. Yeah, it's just it's a. It's, it's, it's one of those, those things to do. It's fantastic. Also, you should read, if you like magic realism, read Louis de Bernier's trilogy. So it starts with The War on Don Emmanuel's Nether Parts. Part two is Senor Vivo and the Coca Lord. And part three is Cardinal Guzman and his Troublesome Offspring. And it was, and that's the fifth in the top five. So two of them are Gabriel Gar- Marci- Marquez. And um, the fifth one is Louis de Bernier's trilogy, which is three books. Okay. But because uh, Dionoso, who is the protagonist all throughout, he saves this this town in Colombia. And obviously, Louis de Bernier was really inspired by Gabriel Garcia, but he saves this town from the Coca Lords. But he doesn't just save them. He's, he goes above and beyond, and he writes for La Prensa, which is this, in this book, is a Spanish magazine, and he, is very, he, is, he speaks truth to power. He is the Bayard Rustin of this movement. But he also has all these kids and they all have blue eyes and a lightning strike on the forehead or some shit. They have some, oh no, the scar across their neck because he gets hung by these, by the cartel who are trying to kill him. And all of his kids, all of his progeny have this scar on their neck and blue eyes like he had. And he, he's based on Dionysus. Mm. And after I read the trilogy, I said, my firstborn son will be called Dionysus. And I'm, I'm committed to that for the rest of my life. So yeah, I would really recommend that trilogy okay. as well. It's a fucking brilliant, and also because, and this is a point I want to reiterate, mm. because it comes back to our conversation around intergenerational conversations and relationships, is that these books, there's a theme in my books that I love, mm. which is all about learning from the people who came before you, mm. or learning from people who have experiences similar, or experiences that we want for ourselves. Well, you know, we've been talking about inheritance, right? Yes, because we've got the play next week. Yeah, play next week and, you know, writing articles about it. And I've been reflecting on on, on inheritance and, you know, I've, I've written my kind of piece. This is a really nice Chardonnay as well. This is Sauvignon. Yeah, that's what I mean. Sauvignon. Sauvignon. I don't really like Sauvignon typically, but this is really nice. Um, <laughs> and, and I was in there the other week and I was kind of, you know, on a Sunday afternoon, you know, my boys will come over and we'll kind of have a a YouTube Vivo kind of battle and see where it takes us. And we did some Patti LaBelle the other week and I haven't seen Patti LaBelle for years. And we watched this and was like, and a couple of my friends were a bit younger and I'm like, fuck, I've never seen this. I'm like, who is that? You know, what is that? And I'm like, damn, you've just got Cardi B. (laughs) Let's just leave it there. Right, right. (laughs) You you know, and and it's just like, shit. And, And I think it's that thing, I remember... I remember years ago going to a video shop. This is how old it was. And I'd said to a guy in the video shop, you know, have you, have you seen Raging Ball? One of my favourite films of all time. Boxing classic. And he was like, mm. I said, it's amazing, man. You've got to see it. It's about gangsters. and It's all this kind of shit and you'll love it. I showed him the company. He goes, but it's in black and white. And he's like, there you go. It's people cut off. They don't want to know the information. They don't want to learn uh, Because it. it's... Okay, got it. Because it's old. It's not, it wasn't produced today. Oh, it's not on Insta. Why would I read those books you've just recommended if I can't see it in 125 characters? But I do that. I, I, Karen, you know Karen Alexander. She called me out because I wouldn't watch um, Call Me By Your Name. And I was like, I don't yeah, watch well, that, that, that I kind of could see why. Because it's like two white yeah, I, I gay men that. again. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And she said... Uh, no, it wasn't Conor Rooney. It was um, the one in, they did in New Yorkshire. The one, yeah, I know God's Own Country. God's Own Country. Yeah, yeah, Which yeah. I was like, look, I watched that and broke back and I got it. Right, exactly. I understand. Right. Thank you. Somebody said to me yesterday, you know, <laughs> and somebody, have you gone to see Lady Bird? Have you gone to see Lady Bird? And I was like, well, why would I? It's yeah. about some girl with red hair in the suburbs. I'm not interested. I'm, I'm, yeah. I'm done with those stories. Yes, because isn't it just Bridget 
I know what it is. With red hair. Yeah, basically, right? But I think that there's that, but then there's so much of in black, queer, in the periphery, in our culture, shit that we love. So it should take you on those YouTube journeys, right? You, yes. you, sh- you should discover who Patty LaBelle is. You should yes. go, fuck, why was that so amazing? Because without Patty, there's no Beyonce. There really Actually, isn't. There isn't, but can I tell you a journey I went on? When I saw Isaac Julian's, okay, so let me go backwards, because this is how it happened. There was Madonna's Vogue. Okay. Which everyone fucking knows. Yeah. And I'm not going to hate on her for that. At all. We'll come back to that. But. Well. Vogue. Come on. Yeah, go Which is a song that is infectious. It's mm-hmm. amazing. Right? And I didn't know where it came from. And then I encountered Paris is Burning. Mm-hmm. Many years later. Mm-hmm. I was like, oh, Voguing. Mm-hmm. Ah, okay. So, um. Madonna took Voguing, and I made I, I came to that conclusion on my own. Oh, yeah, sure, well, sure, sure. The Vogue came out then. Paris is Burning came out then. Madonna must have gotten Vogue from them, and then I was confirmed in articles that I read. Yeah, and, you know, blah blah. blah. And then I um, last year I interviewed Isaac Julian, uh-huh. and for the first time saw Looking for Langston, uh-huh. and I was like, oh my god, Vogue is not only inspired by the queer black people of Paris and Burning. Paris is Burning. The Madonna Vogue. Yeah, the Madonna Vogue is not only inspired by the, um, by Paris is Burning, Mm -hmm. but it's also inspired by Isaac Julian's seminal work from 1988. And Mm -hmm. I was like, how interesting. Mm -hmm. Then, that fall, um, Be All Right by Ariana Grande. Mm -hmm. And her dancers are voguing. I've seen it, but... And it's shot like Looking for Langston. Mm -hmm. And I went... But she's looking at Madonna. She's looking at Madonna. That's her connection. And she's not looking at looking for Langston. Of course not. But I am. Mm. And I'm going, whoa. But a 22-year-old gay man who's looking at Full Ariana circle. is going, she got, who might go, she stole that from Vogue. Maybe. Maybe. At a stretch. At 22. Maybe. Maybe the ballers, the kids who do the ball, might go, oh, she stole it from Madonna. Yes. And Madonna stole it from Paris. But moment. what we're learning now is that Madonna stole it. Yeah, right? Well, we knew that at the time. Right. But... We're <laughs> but <laughs> We knew that. We loved that right. story. Like, Listen, but here's a quick, quick jump, quick, okay. quick aside. I remember being in the US in 1990. My boyfriend lived there at the time, and I was living out there for a little while. Um, and uh, Vogue was huge. And I would go to the clubs in Virginia, and they had families like they do here. Yes. They weren't doing balls; they were doing drag. They would do drag, right? Right. And it was, I remember the Snow family, and they lived. For Madonna. They live for Vogue. Yeah, because at the time it was an amplification of... There you go. Right. So, so, so that, there's that thing with... You see, the thing with wokeness is there's hindsight. That it's really easy to sit there and go, oh, look, they stole such and such. <laughs> but then I kind of throw out a question, you know, and this is going to be a bit, a little bit, a little bit controversial and people may listen to they may not. But, okay, Madonna appropriated Paris is burning. We're in 2018 and Vogue in class is being to- talked to Becky. That's right. Becky is paying for a voguing class. Yes. How is that different? What? I think the difference now, if I may. Yeah. Because there is a difference. Go on. There I'm is a difference. I want to hear it. Okay. And I don't know. I'm thinking out loud here. So, I think the di- Okay, the difference for me has been when I realized that Vogue was not only inspired by... Mm-hmm. Stolen from slash inspired by <laughs> Paris is Burning. Mm-hmm. But when I learned almost a decade later, because I didn't, I didn't discover Vogue until... No, not even decade... No, I'm sorry, because Vogue came out in like 94... 1990. 1990. 1990. 1990. Fine. I have been enjoying Vogue, Vogue, right? Okay. But it wasn't until 2016-2016. That I got the reference to looking for Langston, mm-hmm. and 2015 till I got the reference from to Paris is Burning. Right. That is 25 years. Mm-hmm. Okay. So the difference is that I'm able to appreciate, not appreciate, recognize that what Madonna did at that time mm-hmm. for me was theft. But I'm also able to recognize that at the time, for our community, that must have been such an immense amplification that we could have never have expected. And that we wouldn't have expected um, would result in the erasure of that community, Mm -hmm. right? That 
because our understanding of, we have to remember that our understanding of cultural appropriation, I think, has evolved. And I may be speaking out of turn here no. because I wasn't there at the time. But I think that we are very acutely aware of cultural appropriation now. And it's very easy for us to look in hindsight and say, that's cultural appropriation. I think we were all... I, okay, so... we Because you were there. Yeah, I, but I think... Okay, let's go back to 1990, right? I knew that Elvis Presley had appropriated that music. Right, yeah. I knew that Elvis was the Eminem of his day. <laughs> I, 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 I knew that the Rolling Stones were basically a poor blues tribute band. Right, right. Yeah. And disliked them immensely for it. It was, you know, you listen to, you know, Public Enemy. As Elvis was no hero to me, right? So we knew then that we were, we were aware. We were, we were, we were, woke isn't a new thing. Being aware of cultural progress mm. isn't a new thing. We the, the term is new, but the state of being is not. We are much more vocal about it. There are more platforms and spaces so the echo chamber gets louder and louder and louder. So more people can talk about that, right? Madonna, yeah, Madonna, whilst thieving stuff, was also, in some ways, and it, again, it's about that intersectionality. Right? So for me, as a young black gay man, and for many young black gay men, Madonna was also kind of a voice for us. Well, she paid her dancers, presumably. Well, if you ever go and look at Striker Pose, <laughs> if you look at Striker Pose, the documentary about her dancers and following up, yeah, she treated them appallingly. She did all the things, but she's a fucking rich white star. I expect nothing less. But at the same time, when I reflect back on seeing In Bed With Madonna or Madonna Live, I saw me. Okay, so do you think that... Do you think that the ball culture that has become to define our community so much? Parts of our community. Parts of our community. I mean, when I say define parts of our community, I mean that it has become such a cultural cornerstone of our community. Do you think we would have gotten there without Madonna and her appropriation of Vogue? Mm-mm. I agree. Because Paris is burning would have been a small little film, cult film, that we saw. The two came together. But a new generation discovered Paris is Burning. I'm part of that generation who discovered Paris is Burning. How did you By a RuPaul, I think. Right. Who has proven himself to be intensely problematic. Well, we all have different shades. Um, (laughs) But, I mean, ultimately... Yeah, I mean, it's a a combination of factors over the years. And, And, you know, even before RuPaul's Drag Race... You know, there, there are my friends who were going to clubs and, and, and voguing. Right. You know, people were dropping down, doing the shit in Queer Nation, in the clubs, in the 90s, up until the early noughties, but they weren't throwing balls. So the notion of what balls bring and the family and the commitment and all those sorts of things, I think comes from a combination of things. I don't think, I think without... Paris is Burning, or forget Paris is Burning, about Madonna immersing herself in a ball scene in New York and being the magpie that she is, mm-hmm. and taking okay. from lots of different cultures, and specifically from black culture, because, you know, we forget, you know, Madonna tried to pull a Mary J. Blige, you know, in the mid-90s, right? So, I think that's a very interesting way for us to look at cultural appropriation now, with that sense of, because so much of our conversation around cultural appropriation at the moment, of which I am a staunch... <coughs> You know, I'm one of those voices who says, don't do that without mm. um, paying homage to the culture you took it from. But I think it's so easy for us, particularly in this age of social media, to get swept up in this cultural appropriation conversation without recognizing, actually, that if Marc Jacobs hasn't appropriated, or Gucci hasn't appropriated the work of a black designer in New York... Mm. Dapper Dan. Dapper Dan, thank you. That perhaps Hip-hop a, a new then. generation of us wouldn't have necessarily bumped into Dapper, Dapper Dan, Dan on our own. Absolutely. Which then speaks to the lack of infrastructure that we have as a queer black community to promote the culture that we have helped create. I agree. What I'd add to that is there also needs to be a level amongst us to discover that history, to find out about it, to dig a bit deeper. I, fair enough, Gucci puts it in front of me, but that information is available to you. 
Where, where, where's your, where's your investig? Not you, you personally. Yes. But where is the collective investigative culture? Because because it, it, that lack of investigative culture, it's not a lack necessarily. But if I think of my own experience, which has been, I, I, I think of a serendipity. Uh-huh. I mean, one, I think we're not giving credit for our cultural curiosity as black people. Mm-hmm. So, and in the States, it's obviously very different mm-hmm. because, although I say that, that it's very different in the U.S. Because we have um, organizations and legends that we look to, but on that note, I didn't discover Bride Rustin. Mm-hmm. So, Okay. But there doesn't seem to be the, the requisite infrastructure for us, for our cultural curiosity to be appreciated or to be cultivated in such a way that, you know, Maria Popova, Brain Pickings, talk, talks about this all the time. We are curious human beings. Mm. And busy, black, busy being black is a product of that curiosity. It's like, okay, well, not only am I curious about where I fucking come from on an African-American level, mm. but also on a queer black level. But I'm curious about how we fucking got here in the first place. And once I've uncovered and, like, dusted off that curiosity, you now can't shut me up about it. It's all I'll talk about. And so, there, in this intergenerational conversation, there has to be, and we have to be able to acknowledge the fact that we don't necessarily live in structures and in a society that encourages black people to be curious about these intersections. No. Because we inherit our heritage uh, by way of our family, Mm. right? Whether you're um, African or a British African or Mm -hmm. African in Britain or whether you're Caribbean or African American, wherever you are, we inherit our heritage. Mm. That there's there's, there's a very strong sense of where we've come from. Obviously, yes. African American is different because we have no real ties to Africa. Mm. But that's there's and there's a, from what I gather, there's a stronger sense of that for um, Caribbean people. Maybe to an extent. Yeah, yeah, to an extent. You know, my theory on it is we're busy being black. <laughs> <laughs> yes, but we're busy being black, right? You know, I so, gotta end the podcast now, like. Right? <laughs> we have the luxury of. of, of of, of sometimes delving into that shit and sometimes <laughs> delving into that shit can be painful it is you know we switch off blah 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 blah. so I think you know I try not to be too hard on us but I when I think when I draw back to to black queer folk and where we are and tying it back to the conversation about Vogue and looking for Langston and that curiosity that I think that we should have and I know that I have because I love finding out shit you know you told me that started here and that influenced it. I don't know. I'm onto the influence. I'm going right back. So when you're looking at, at Vogue and then looking for Langston, well, take yourself back to the Harlem Renaissance. Read some. Yes. Read some of that stuff. Yes. Find out about Langston, about Bruce, about Fire, w. about Du Bois. Bois. All of those things. Find out about that movement. Find out what black queer folk did in Harlem in the 1920s. And also what black women were doing in the movement. All of the Harlem Renaissance. Each of these discoveries reminds us that black is not monolithic. No. And, and that queer blackness is perhaps a little bit more monolithic, but in so much as we have a very limited history to draw upon. Yeah. But when we're... That doesn't make it monolithic. No, but I mean, we're, we are... I mean, and that's part of the challenge that we face in our, in our activism, in trying to build community, in trying to do the work that we are doing, is... There were so many different voices in that chorus. Mm. So many. And everybody singing at different temps and different bases. <laughs> everybody was just singing Negro spiritual. But it's all over the place. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's all over the place. Someone's to do Barbara Tucker. And Al, you know, it's, it's just all over the place. So how do you get everybody to sing to one tune? Do right? we need people to sing to one tune? No, you don't. I think we you do. don't. But what you do need them to I think do. that's what we're learning. You need them to sing the same song. No. Yeah. Why? We, because it's the big song. We need to be singing the big song together. Right, but we are singing the big song. We're singing a different version of the big song. That's Maybe, what I think. yeah, yeah. Variations. There's what we need is to learn how to sing our versions of the big song as part of a chorus. Yeah, I can live with that. 
right? I can agree with that. I want the West Indians to sing their song. I want the influence of the voodoo culture of the West Indian, which they kept, they held on to so tightly, and like they have, like they have done in Louisiana, mm. that we haven't done in Georgia, mm. right? We're not, we don't practice. I'm being general. I'm generalizing, but in Louisiana, you got Creoles mm. and voodoo, and they're very, they're very connected to mm. that. Um, uh, West African culture in Georgia the red clay is red because mm. it's filled with black blood so we black mm. right it's a, it's a very different um, understanding of, 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 of blackness and heritage and if you go to Jamaica voodoo to Haiti right and I mean we're talking about miles of difference sure <laughs> like max hundreds of miles and actually to where we where we came from is thousands of miles mm. so yeah, and so we don't want everyone singing from the same hymn sheet. We want to create the space, the big cavernous space, where we're singing in concert because we're different sections of the choir. To really extend that metaphor out, as long as the, as long as the choir is loud, yeah, as long as that choir is loud, which I, we always are. I, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I gotta get the talk. Yeah, I never um, get the talk, Mark. I could I could honestly speak to you for forever and I, I'm sure we will. Thank you for taking part in this. Because you sharing yourself with me and you being willing to share yourself with our community at large means a lot because this is what we need to heal. Yeah. Without the tweet trauma. Yeah. Busy Being Black is the podcast exploring how we live in the fullness of our queer black lives. Thank you to our partners, UK Black Pride and Blackout UK, and to you, the listeners. I would love to hear from you. If you have feedback about Busy Being Black or know of someone I should be in conversation with, please get in touch on busybeingblackpod at gmail.com. And remember, your support doesn't cost any money. Please rate, review, and share this podcast and follow at underscore busybeingblack on Twitter and Instagram, where you can join the conversation using the hashtag busybeingblack. Finally, thank you to Anthony Giles, a queer black Grammy-nominated producer based in New York City for these bomb-ass Busy Being Black beats. I share.